We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men gathered in Philadelphia to consider how to make the government of the United States more perfect. Over the course of five months, they argued, debated, considered and rejected ideas, notions, and various systems. In the end, they created the Constitution of the United States a document predicated on the idea that men can rule themselves by law. This is Constitution Thursday, a time when we look at the history, ideas, arguments, and interpretations of the Constitution, from its original creation to today, and how it affects our lives now. Oh, good morning, good evening, Good afternoon, wherever you are, whatever you do. A lot of things happening in the world today, most of them far beyond our control, you might say. Perhaps it's time we took a pause and thought about life and about the laws of our country, states, constitutions, politics, and or the news. Don't touch that dial, just try to hear me out for a little while. So, this is what happens every now and then. Um, I spent two weeks going a specific direction with today's show. This is what we're going to talk about. This is what it's going to evolve. This is where it's going to go. This is what it's going to say. And then in the midst of the final preparations, came across a story that, well, it told what I wanted to tell in a much better way. So if you looked at the preview video and it said the printer's devil, we're still going to talk about him, but in a different direction. I hope you don't mind. You can go by Barry Capulis at Olive Vera if I drink coffee so that others might live. Welcome to Constitution Thursday. And we continue our look at 1876, the election of 1876, in which I think many of the troubles, many of the difficulties, many of the misunderstandings we have today between ourselves as citizens really track back to the election of 1876. Maybe not entirely, maybe not directly, but the the events of that election and the fallout of that election, which would be the most contested election in the history of our country. Again, as I said last week, Clinton, Gore, Gore Bush, Nothing. Clinton, Trump, they're not even in the same time zone of contested elections. But at the same time, the solutions that the nation came up with for that election essentially eviscerated 
much of what had been accomplished. And this is part of the problem. Um, this is where much of what we deal with now, I think, really got its, its impetus. We start in the spring of 1902, which is kind of a strange place to start when we're talking about the election of 1702, I know. The, election, uh, the, the spring of, of 1902 in the state of Virginia decided that it was time to redo its constitution, its state constitution. The state constitution that they were operating under was written in 1870 and approved in 1870 by the Reconstruction government, and it was, well, pretty harsh as, as state constitutions went particularly if you were a defeated Confederate. The upshot of the whole thing was that the state wanted to redo this because they were tired of being suppressed as they saw it. And so it was time. And the delegates gathering there in Richmond were quite a varied lot across the state. But one of the most prominent of their members was this guy here, Carter Glass. Carter Glass is a newspaperman. He owns two newspapers in Lynchburg, Virginia, where he publishes them. I believe both of them were weeklies, but it, that may not be the case, and it's really not relevant to our issue. He grew up as a printer's devil. Printer's devil is a man, a young man, who is being apprenticed to a printer, and he essentially does all the all the devil work that that printing in those days required. And you can see him still showing that he knows how to lay out the blocks to print the pages. He never really stopped being a newspaper man, even later in life. His two newspapers were vehemently anti-African-American. They, as Carter Glass himself would say, true Southerners despise the 15th Amendment. They spit on it. They curse at it. And his newspapers reflected his opinions about that. And long after he died, into the 1960s, his newspapers would continue to oppose civil rights for African-American citizens of the state of Virginia. It got to the point where at one point, he is, his newspapers would not even print wedding announcements for black or mixed-race couples. He wouldn't print them. Wouldn't print the papers. Then there came a time where there was a predominantly black high school in the area, and he would not print their scores, their sports scores. And literally, the only thing that got them to start doing that, to start relenting on this in the 1960s, long after he was dead, 15 years after he died, um, was the formation of, a, of a, a competitor paper in Lynchburg. And it was at that point that his two papers finally relented. And even after the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, began to soften their views on that. Carter Glass was a very prominent financial man. In fact, he would become secretaries under the under the Wilson administration, which again, the Wilson administration, not often talked about, one of the most racist, racially biased administrations in the history of our country. Woodrow Wilson undid many of the protections that African Americans had gained under previous administrations and did away with them. Carter Glass would become one of his trusted cabinet members and would serve quite ably as a financial guy in the Wilson administration. Later, he would go on to become a United States senator from the state of Virginia. He would serve for 26 years as the senator from Virginia, and in fact was a 
supporter, one would not say staunch, but he was he was a supporter of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal at first. He he had some financial disagreements. We talked before about hard money versus soft money. He he had some things he did not like about the New Deal. Many of those problems that he had with it were race-based. Did not like the fact that much of the New Deal was targeted at poor whites and African Americans. He <laughs> didn't like that. And he became one of Roosevelt's staunchest critics during his time in office. He would actually serve until 1946, although he his last his last term in office, uh, he never actually went to the office. He did die in Washington, D.C. in 1946. But if you had to encapsulate Carter Glass, who's, by the way, in 2008, complete side note here, those of you that recall the financial crisis of 2008, the worst financial crisis since 19, since the Great Depression, blah, 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 blah. Um, there was a lot of discussion about how this happened, why this happened, the deregulation of the financial industry. And there was a lot of talk about the Glass-Steagall Act. Well, Carter Glass is the guy whose name is on that Glass-Steagall Act, which is still law today. Parts of it had been have been amended and or overturned, repealed, but the act still is in effect. So this man, who we're about to learn really the worst about, is one of two people. In fact, you could say he's solely responsible. The only reason Stiegel's name was on it was because he was, he was friendly with Roosevelt. Glass was not. Um, the, the legislation that we use today still carries this man's name. And you, if you had to encapsulate everything about him, in 1902 at the convention for the Virginia State Constitution, he said this, this plan, now he's specifically talking about the plan to disenfranchise felons, but follow me here. The plan will eliminate the darkie as a political factor in this state in less than five years, so that in no single county will there be the least concern felt for the complete supremacy of the white race in the affairs of government. Carter Glass, 1902. Now again, this is a man who would go on to become very, very important in the Woodrow, in the Woodrow Wilson administration and later as a United States senator in the era of the Great Depression and the New Deal and even World War II. He was hardly alone. John Good was the president of the Virginia Bar Association, was also a delegate to that convention in 1902. The safety and perpetuity of our free institutions depend upon the purity and inviolability inviolability of the ballot. The Negro had just emerged from a state of slavery. He had no education. He had no experience in the duties of citizenship. He had no capacity to participate in the functions of government. Under the circumstances existing at the period of Reconstruction, the bestowal of universal suffrage upon the Negro was a grievous wrong to both races. These are hard things to hear, folks. Believe me, they're hard, th they're hard things for me to read. But this was the prevailing mentality in 1902 in Virginia and in other states around the South prior to that. The fact of the matter is, is that virtually every state had already, virtually every Southern state had already rewritten their constitutions to establish certain conditions under which people could vote. They were very specific about those conditions. And in reality, it was the it was the outcome of the 1876 election which allows this condition to happen 
One of the conditions that the Compromise of 1877 will, will make is that Reconstruction will end, that the South is no longer subject to anything other than self-government. Remember, the four, though the 14th Amendment has passed, there is, no, there is no incorporation. The states are still free to do what they want to do, and, and believe me, they're going to go do it at this point. And that's part of what this outcome, so over the ensuing years from 1876, 1877 through 1902, constitutions of the states have been rewritten. Mississippi did it the year before or a decade earlier. And in fact, their constitution would be challenged in court, would go all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and it would create, well, an electric stir. We're going to talk about that in just a moment or two. In essence, what most of the southern state constitutions post-1876, and particularly the Virginia Convention of 1902, would end up doing because of the effects of the Compromise of 1877, the fallout from the election of 1876, they would rewrite their constitutions and they would include in these things such, such things as poll taxes. And you may be saying to yourself, but David, isn't there a constitutional amendment that bans poll taxes? Yes, there is. It passed in 1966. We're talking about, you know, 1876 to 1902, right, right in that area. In fact, Carter Glass would say about poll taxes, they are done with a view to the elimination of every Negro voter who can be gotten rid of legally without materially impairing the numerical strength of the white electorate. That's what he said about poll taxes in 1902 when he was asked about them going into the, coming out of that convention. The second thing they would do is they would establish literacy tests. So in other words, according to the state law, state constitution, you either had to be able to read it for yourself or you would have to have a section of it read to you and you would have to explain in your own words what that meant. So if you went to register to vote, let's say you had paid your poll tax, then they would give you a literacy test. If your literacy test was you couldn't read, if you could read, that's one thing, but if you couldn't read, and, and many people in, those era, in that era could not, you would have to have a section of the Constitution read to you. Now imagine that, if you will. Unlike the United States Constitution, the Virginia Constitution of 1902 was not written in the language of the people. It's kind of intriguing. It's kind of like the King James Version Bible in some ways. You know how people get a little snitty about that being basically, you know, the language of the King's English and how it doesn't communicate well and blah, blah, blah. Whether you, I, This isn't a religious argument. I don't care if you agree with me or not. It's, it has that reputation. Well, if you couldn't explain it right back, what it means, then you failed the literary te literacy test and you were not allowed to register to vote. The third thing they did was they made sure that juries from now on, this goes back to this uh, disenfranchise of, disenfranchisement of felonies, felons, they made sure that juries from now on in the state of Virginia would be registered voters only. So the only people who could sit on the jury were people who could pay the poll tax and pass the literacy test. Okay? Now the problem here is that while this is going to disenfranchise four-fifths of the African Americans in the state of Virginia at the time, 
Most of them can't read. Few of them have the wealth to do this. This goes good enough uh, so far. The problem is, remember what he said, it has to not materially affect the white supremacy, white electoral supremacy in the state. The problem is, this is going to eliminate probably half of the white vote in the state of Virginia because most of them were rural, most of them were poor, most of them couldn't read. And so they added the grandfather clause. The grandfather clause creates automatic registration. If you qualify under the grandfather clause, you cannot be, you are not required to pay the poll tax nor the literacy, nor the literacy test. Okay? Which means that you can serve on a jury, even though you can't read or write. And the, the only rule here is your grandfather, whoever you are, your grandfather is the key. Was your grandfather registered to vote? Yes or no? Well, in virtually every case of the poor whites in Virginia, the answer was yes. Because grandfather, what, you know, an average generation, 20 years, this is, you know, this is 1902 when they did these grandfather clauses. It's very likely that your grandfather was registered to vote. Whereas if you are African-American, the grandchild of a freedman, or even the great-grandchild by this point of a freedman, it's unlikely that your grandfather was registered to vote because prior to the 15th Amendment, they couldn't. And so you would not qualify under the grandfather clause, which meant that you're back to poll tests and literacy tests. And again, you are unlikely to be able to pass those. And if you cannot pass those, well, you can't vote. And if you can't vote, you can't be on a jury. You can't be, you can't do a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a whole laundry list of things that you're not going to be allowed to do in the state of Virginia. The upshot is you have no participation in the government of that state, which is exactly what men like Carter Glass wanted. They wanted the Negro eliminated from the, the political administration of the state of Virginia. They really wanted it for the entire nation. As, uh, as one of them would say, the 15th Amendment should be repealed, and we should, we should advocate for the repeal of the 15th Amendment, and they did. But they also knew they weren't going to get that because you've got to get three-quarters of the states to go along with it. That just wasn't going to happen. There were far too many northern states and far too many western states where things like this were offensive. And this attitude was offensive, and they weren't going to go along with that. And so they did the next best thing in their minds, which was they disenfranchised people to the degree that they could. And that's where our story kind of begins. That's where the background of our story. And again, much of this happens because of the Compromise of 1877. Because the Compromise of 1877, in the post-election debate of 1876, who won? Remember when I left you, there were three states, 19 electoral votes that were disputed. Who, who got these notes? We don't know. And if Tilden gets any one of those states, he's going to win. Hayes has to get all three to win. Okay? Obviously, if you know anything about history, you know what's going to happen here. But the fact of the matter is, is that in the process of this, there's... There are Southern Democrats, Bourbon Democrats, who are putting on their Confederate war uniforms, getting out their, their Confederate battle flags. They are ready to fight again to make Tilden president. But ultimately, a compromise will be reached, and that compromise 
will end Reconstruction, and it will end the government's enforcement of the 15th Amendment, and to a degree, the 14th Amendment. In fact, one of the court cases that will go to the Supreme Court in the meantime talks about the fact that the laws in the state of Mississippi, which is where the grandfather clause really kind of originates, um, are not unconstitutional. The laws, those laws that they pass, because the laws themselves apply evenly. In other words, you, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, green, red, yellow, whatever. If you can't pay the poll tax or pass a literacy test or have a grandfather, it applies to everybody equally, right? That's the argument. The fact that they're being discriminatorily enforced, the court dismisses as, hey, you know, you can't, you can't legislate that. You can't, you can't make a constitution that'll tell a person how to behave. And that's kind of where they leave it. Until Christmas of 1895, Christmas Day, 1895, probably overnight, 1895, or Christmas night, Christmas Boxing Day, whatever, overnight in Mississippi, a couple of tragedies happened, but one is really particular to what we're going to talk about tonight. This is hard to read, but it comes from the local newspapers down there. And you'll read here about two deaths of some people. One is a tragic accident. One, on the other hand, however, is a murder. Murder of Elizabeth King appears to have been a dark crime. The paper said the body was found partially concealed by quilts and rags in a room of her house on Thursday, and the coroner's jury returned a verdict of death by strangulation at the hands of one Henry Williams, a young Negro man with whom she had lived. Henry Williams is also a black man. The circumstantial evidence was so clear as to leave little or no doubt as to the guilt of Williams, who has not been seen since Christmas Day. The Negroes are much excited over the murder and threaten to lynch Williams promptly when caught. The crime is, it's, it's, it's heinous. It's, you know, it, it really is, a, it's like most murders, it's, one of those things that shocks people, one of those things that angers people a great deal. It is absent in the story here, however, and requiring some historical research, which I spent much of today doing. Mr. Williams, Henry Williams, is suspected, nobody knows for sure, but he's also suspected of killing another young woman two years before this, but nobody can prove it. In this particular case, however, the circumstantial evidence causes the jury, the uh, the coroner's jury, to point the finger right at him, and he will be indicted in just a few days. Later, by the latter part of January, he's captured. He is suspected of the murder of Elizabeth King on December 26th, as well as another murder a few years ago. He was captured while fighting in a loft at his father's house near Shaw last Saturday. His trial took place on Thursday before Justice D. Bannon, O'Bannon, and the overwhelming circumstantial evidence introduced, advanced in the case, sorry, this is hard to read, 
in the case of Elizabeth King is, <coughs> excuse me, unanswerable. But the prisoner, who seems singularly hardened and indifferent, boldly acknowledged that he killed the unfortunate woman and is also said to confess to the previous murder two years ago. It was rather it was rather inclined to boast of his deeds, they said. He was committed without bail by Justice O'Bannon and is now safely behind bars. An indictment would be returned by a jury, the grand jury. That grand jury, of course, is composed of what? Anybody remember? Um, well, people who could pay the poll taxes, pass the literary tests, or had passed the grand for their cause, and they were the only people that could be on juries. So, in essence here, you're dealing with a white jury, white grand jury that will indict him, and a few weeks later, he will be tried in front of an all-white jury. Again, the evidence is apparently overwhelming, and he is found guilty and sentenced to hang, be executed for his crimes. Now, this is one of those cases in history where you kind of look at it and go, well, he probably did it. I mean, there's really no, there's not much argument about that. In fact, according to the newspapers there, he, he confessed to it. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Whether, you know, I wasn't there. I could just go on the eyewitness news reports of the day. But the bottom line is, the, the issue of his guilt or not will not be the relevant issue in this case. The problem will be that all-white jury. And with the new constitution of the state of Mississippi down there, in effect, he will challenge the state's conviction of him and sentence to death on the basis that they have violated his 14th, 15th, 14th Amendment rights for certain in the equal protection in that there's not a single African-American on the jury. And the state constitution of the state of Mississippi is unconstitutional because it prevents African-Americans from qualifying to be on juries, and this is patently unfair. And... These people are going to kill me. They're going to execute me. They're going to take my life, Fifth Amendment, uh, without due process, without proper due process. The, of course, the Mississippi Supreme Court will completely reject this. They will support their new constitution, but that doesn't keep it from going to the United States Supreme Court, where in one of the more know, curious, curious rulings I've, I've read, Joseph McKenna, Justice Joseph McKenna, will write this for the majority. The Constitution of Mississippi and its statutes do not on their face discriminate between the races. And it has not actually been, it has not been shown that their actual administration was evil. Only that evil was possible under those statutes and under that Constitution. In other words, somebody could do this, you're right, I mean... Somebody could discriminate on the basis of this, but the laws themselves, I mean, if you can't pass a poll, pay a poll tax or pass a literacy test, whose fault is that? Whose fault is that? Is it our fault that you can't? Is it the state of Mississippi's fault that you can't do that? Or is it your fault that you can't do that? So the laws themselves are not discriminatory. However, there may be some people who commit evil under this by discriminating, but again, those are individuals, and we can't control what individuals do. So, sorry, 
we reject 9-0, we reject your case, and remand you back to the state of Mississippi, where, of course, the excitement levels and the anger is still boiling over here. It's a very interesting crime. It's a very interesting trial. It's a very interesting Supreme Court case. It's also very disappointing because, again, you're dealing with a group of people, a group of men, a group of citizens, a group of states who sacrificed immensely, who sacrificed enormously. Folks, I, I, I see this. I don't, I'm not saying this to be patting myself on the back. I'm saying it because I want you to hear the passion. My great-grandfather died of his wounds in, in, in the early 1900s because he believed so fervently in the cause of the Union and the cause of ending slavery. Somehow or another in 1877, with the Compromise of 1877, all that sacrifice was forgotten. And it was just accepted that the South can go ahead and start discriminating against people all they want. What difference does it make to us? What difference does it make? Would we care? Right? Instead of standing up for what they knew was right, for what they had sacrificed for, for what their brothers and fathers and sons had died for and been injured for, to get the presidency by one electoral vote, they were willing to sacrifice all that. Remember when I told you that neither party would end up looking good in all this? The Democrats were using the disenfranchisement of the African American to retain and to gain and then retain political power in those areas which they had. Republicans forgot, yes, yes, they forgot the memory of Lincoln and they forgot what they were fighting for. They forgot what they were standing for. They got tired, they got worn down. And when the moment came, having the presidency was more important than principle. What does that tell you about anything? October 5th, 1899, this appeared in the Greenville, Mississippi papers about the hanging of Henry Williams. He actually hung on October 4th, 1899. He was... It's it's an interesting story. I mean, he he admits to his crimes even after all of the the Supreme Court cases and after all of the the political discussions and after all of the evidence that this was a discriminatory case that he wasn't given a fair trial, even though he was most likely guilty, he wasn't given a fair trial. He went to the gallows with great dignity. He he didn't. He didn't whimper. He didn't fight. He didn't do any of those things. He went straight up, and seconds later, says the article, he was gone. He was willing to acknowledge the fact that he had committed his crimes. He said that he had been converted. He had found Jesus in jail, and he was assured that he was going to heaven, and so he had no fear of being executed. This article appeared, as I said, on October 5th, 1899, in the Clarion Ledger. Jackson, Mississippi. Most interesting, it appeared not on the front page. After all of this Supreme Court fight, after all of this debate discussion, after all of this soul searching, it appears on the very back page of the Clarion Ledger 
of October 5th, 1899. And it closes with this. Thus ends the career of the famous prisoner who excited the entire legal fraternity of Mississippi by his test of the new state constitution, resulting in that able document being held up by the highest tribunal in the land. After all he did, after all of his arguments and attempts and, and, and moves and, and all of those things, he failed, and our Constitution was upheld. And because our Constitution was upheld, that means we're good to go. We can legally discriminate all we want. We can, we can do those things all we want, which, of course, is exactly what Carter Glass had said all along, wasn't it? Suffrage article of the new state constitution in Virginia does not necessarily deprive a single white man of the ballot, but it will inevitably cut from the existing electorate four-fifths of the Negro voters. His audience applauded. His audience cheered. His audience was excited. Henry Williams, aid for his crimes, but tried to show us that what we were, while it might be justice, wasn't really the right way, was it? Carter finished by saying, that was the purpose of this convention, and that will be its achievement. It will be discrimination within the letter of the law, and not in violation of the law. That, Jim Crow in a nutshell, isn't it? That is the result of the Compromise of 1877. That is the result of putting power over priorities, putting wants over values, of forgetting who we are and why we are. We get to be president. Big deal, right? Big freaking deal.